to get into the word, but before we do, I'll, I'll build into it. Uh, but let's, uh, let's pass out some scriptures right now. If you guys have the Bibles, we'll pass them out. We're going to be in uh, 2 Kings. <clears throat> and I actually am going to put it up on the screen for you momentarily. Um, so be patient with me. And by the way, a lot of you know that this is the um, third anniversary of the borderline shooting. We lost 12 of our young people. And um, tragic. Their folks are still just reeling and hurting. And it was a seminal event in the history of our city. It was tragic. And then we were surrounded by the fires. I kind of want to forget that day, but you can't, right? Just so sad. So keep the families in prayer and the survivors as well. A lot of them are still traumatized by it. Um, I think the one thing that got me uh, so heavily was the agents that had responded to the scene that night <clears throat> because everyone, uh, the gunman fired into the ceiling and everyone rabbited out of the building, broke the windows. So the, the ground was littered with debris and all the phones that they had dropped. And so all night long, parents are calling their children to see if they're all right. And they just said the whole floor was vibrating and ringing the whole night And <clears throat> for those officers that responded. And just, you know, we live in a fallen world and there's evil and uh, it visited our city that day. And you just can't forget about that. <clears throat> so uh, we're gonna be in 2 Kings chapter 13. But before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I wanted to share with you um, how the message came about because that's kind of how I do my introduction. And that way you can live in my brain for a little bit. If you don't like being there, just put some earplugs in. <clears throat> I did a lot of traveling this week, South Carolina, uh, Arizona, uh, Alabama. We were at Clemson University with Charlie Kirk. He spoke there to a packed house. We were in uh, University of Alabama. He spoke there. It was a packed house. When we got to the University of Alabama. It was kind of an interesting one. We'd been traveling quite extensively. It was exhausting. We get to the University of Alabama. We get into the room. Um, we're getting ready to speak. And, and um, don't worry. They're just trying to do as best they can, but you're still looking at them. Just... <clears throat> huh? Oh, my wife's not coming. She says she's not coming back. <laughs> so uh, University of Alabama, the place is packed. And as I'm there, uh, someone says, hey, there's protesters outside. Well, that's where I want to go. <laughs> so I, I went out uh, to where the protesters were, and they were out there, and um, they were, you know, chanting Black Lives Matter, and they, they got a little crude. Uh, they, they, you know, they F Charlie Kirk. And to the credit of the... Um, adults that were there, they said, no, no, stop that. And I walked out, <clears throat> and I was just standing there, and I was returning texts on my phone, just kind of listening and just scooting in closer so that if anyone wanted to talk to me, I was available. Uh, and I, by the way, I've had the best three days of my life. I left my phone in the back of the pocket on the passenger's side in the Uber. And uh, so if you've been trying to reach me, I'm not dead. I just don't have my phone, and I've loved it. I really have. I think I, I don't want it back. I love that Uber driver. I'll be somewhere where I don't know. I'll get it back, though. Uh, and if it's urgent, call the Lord. Um, <clears throat> so so as, uh, as I'm standing there going through my texts, um, a man walks up to me, a, a black man. His name's Chad. He goes, uh, what are you doing here? I, I said, I just came out to see what's going on. Oh, okay. You work at the university? I said, no. He goes, what do you do for a living? 
I said, I'm Charlie Kirk's pastor. And he says, Charlie Kirk has a pastor? <laughs> he goes, that racist has a pastor. And I said, um, well, doesn't everyone need a pastor? He goes, yeah, he got me there. And I said, Chad, you don't know me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a promise to you. My, my email is rob at godspeak.com. And if you have any evidence of him being a racist, you send it to me. And I know this much. Charlie will repent of it. And he'll, he'll admit it, and he'll repent of it if there's anything you find evidence. He said, well, what about, and I go, oh, oh, oh. I didn't say we're going to talk about it now. I said, email it to me. I didn't come out to get in the weeds. I said, Chad, I came out because there's a chasm between the kids in that room and the kids out here, and we're the adults in the room. We need to close that gap. We need to do that relationally. I said, I came out to get to know you and say hello. So we started talking. You're a really sweet man. He goes, you don't know anything about the black church. I said, well, you're probably right. I mean, I think I know a little bit about it, but you, know, you don't know anything about the black church. I said, okay. I kid you not. My phone rings. It was Bishop Broderick Huggins. <laughs> Holy Spirit, just like, ha. Ah. <clears throat> he goes, you sat next to Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright. I said, yeah. I was the only white guy invited to his anniversary at the church. And he goes, okay, you know a little bit about the black church. <laughs> I, said, I said, Chad, um, I, I was a youth minister in Fresno in the 90s, uh, right after the LA riots, Rodney King beating and or shooting and then the uh, Reginald Denny beating. And the, you know, I'm, I'm from California and places on fire. And I lived in Fresno that had the second highest murder rate and second highest car theft rate of any city in the United States. I said, you know, Chad, I, I was a fly on the walls. I watched all these ministers get together and we operated in the Lowell district, which is the most impoverished area in Fresno. And all the churches got together and we went in and we painted the, the slumlord houses. The slumlords loved it, but the residents loved it even more. And we, we, we just went in and started caring about the school and the, and doing the best we could. And as as every entity, both you know, the police and, and the, the mayor and the churches got together and we worked in unity, we watched the, the highest crime rate drop in FBI statistic history. And Fresno went from being that cesspool on the verge of riots to becoming America's finest city in less than three years. And I, I said, and I'm gonna say something that you're gonna find racist. And I'm just gonna warn you in advance. He goes, all right. I said, all of us that were doing the work, we didn't see color. He goes, you're right, that's racist. I go, I knew you were going to say that. And I said, <clears throat> we have to dialogue. We, we have to communicate. Otherwise, there'll be rhetoric and a chasm, and we're the adults in the room. I said, I came out because I need to know why you find that racist, and I want you to know why I don't find it racist. Okay. I find it racist that when you say you don't see color, you don't see my pain. I go, I get that. Fair enough. I said, you know why I'm taken aback by your statement? Because you don't understand what I'm saying when I say that. He goes, what do you mean by it? I said, we didn't care. We were so busy doing what was necessary to be done that we just forgot what everyone looked like. We all had the same goal in mind. He goes, okay. I go, you and I have to be the ones to close that gap. We got to set the example for the next generation. And, I, and we're both ministers. 
and we, we deal in truth. And there's a lot of rhetoric out there and we could spend all day arguing it, but I don't wanna do it until I get to know you and you get to know me. One of the reasons why Bishop Huggins and I are such good friends, we're, we're opposites in many regards, especially ideologically, but that's, that gap is closing. We have heart-to-heart conversations and we challenge one another. I said, I'm gonna make a deal with you, Chad. On my dime, I want you to come out here. You take the pulpit, you come on my live stream. I won't do any gotcha questions and we're gonna get to know each other. He goes, really? I go, yeah. If you have any doubt, we can call Bishop Huggins. You can ask him about my hospitality as well. And he goes, no, I, I take you at your word. And I said, we're the adults. We have to make sure that this nation that's embroiled right now is not consumed by rhetoric, but is healed by dialogue. The word dialogue has logos in it, which means truth, which means the word of God. It's what you find in John 1. In the beginning was the word logos, and the word logos was with God, and the word logos was God, and the word logos became flesh and dwelt with man. We're dealing with truth. Now, we also have to, as the Bible says, forget what's behind, strive for what is ahead, not to, not to forget our, our history, but certainly to heal our pain. God set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And we just started talking. It was precious. And we encouraged one another and, and it, the group kind of dissipated and walked away. I walk in, try to go, where you been? I go, saving your life. <laughs> yeah, was... I'm mindful of that because um, I was at the event here last night The Brave put on. They asked me to speak and and as I'm coming in, uh, Kathleen Wilson, a reporter for uh, the Ventura County Star, goes by and she says, do you think uh, Tim McCarthy has a chance? He's running for supervisor position, the one that Linda Parks is vacating. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and, and by the way, I endorsed him from the pulpit, uh, which you know people were like, ooh. <laughs> the people said, ooh, don't realize we live in America. Uh, and you're, you're, yeah, I, a church is a church, and Congress shall make no law. And, and the rea- reality is, um, he, he, he's, why wouldn't I endorse him? He's just wonderful guy. So she says, does he have a chance? I said, you know, if he were running in the last election, I'd say he doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell, a snowball's chance in hell of winning. But now, he does. She goes, why? I go, did you watch the election in Virginia and New Jersey? <laughs> and she goes, well, what does that mean? I said, I said, Kathleen, um, the first black American was elected to statewide office in the history of Virginia. And it wasn't just, a, it was a black woman and an immigrant and they're Republican. I mean, oh, excuse me, in a democratic state, in a Democrat state, excuse me. And I said, attorney general, the governorship and Loudoun County School District and all that's happening there, People will put up with a lot of stuff, but the minute you start messing with their kids, they're done. And that's what you just saw at the last election. It's, it's, it's mom and dad saying, enough is enough. You're not gonna do this to my kids. And I said, Kathleen, a truck driver who spent $158 beat the third most powerful elected official in New Jersey, who in the last election, who in the last election spent $16 million. And this guy beat him with 158 bucks. And he's a Republican truck driver who had gout and could barely walk 
precincts. It was painful. But he'd had enough and he had to make a difference because nobody wanted to run against him because he was unbeatable. And this man said, win or lose, this is what I have to do. And he did it. And, and it's completely Democrat. I mean, it's just, they're, they're, a Republican running, it just doesn't happen, let alone win. And he did it with $158. He bought Dunkin' Donuts and yard signs. Uh, I think it's uh, Edmund Durr. Durr. And then I told her, I said, Kathleen, this is the issue. I said, um, have you looked at the VAERS website? Do we have that slide for the VAERS website yet? They're working diligently. There we go. I said, the VAERS website, hard to read, I know, but I said, have you seen the VAERS website? Calculated since uh, uh, 2001 or 2011 to 2021, the highest number of vaccine deaths recorded by the government websites, 132 in one given year, 180 something in another given year. But this, this injection, this vaccine, which they've redefined the word vaccine, CDC has, they say it's problematic, has already killed 17,619 people. And note at the bottom, you see the asterisks with number of deaths. Note at the bottom, the total number of deaths associated with COVID-19 vaccines is greater than the number of deaths associated with all other vaccines combined since 1990. And you're gonna give that to our kids when they have a 99.9972% survival rate and they 200 kids that have died of it were all morbidly obese or had severe comorbidities, whether it was leukemia or, or diabetes. And you're gonna do that to our children when, when all combined since 1990, this thing is deadly. I call it the clot shot. You probably had it. Go and we're gonna have a lady come and share, a couple folks come and share how you clean your system. This thing is not good. And these are healthy human beings that are dropping. And, and we're forcing it on these folks. And you're just, number of adverse reactions, 837,000 since December 2020 to present. Life-threatening events, 19,000. Number of hospitalizations. And you're going, well, that's no big deal. Okay, let's just go to Italy, which is the one that started this mess, because everything's happening in Italy, everyone's dying. The newspaper just reported, the Institute has revised the downward, the number of people who have died from COVID Rather than with COVID, they quoted 130,000 deaths, and now it's under 4,000. Let me explain that. It's the same thing we're doing in Ventura County. We say they died with COVID, and so we calculate that as a death. Not from, but with. Now Italy's looked at and they said, well, the only people who've died from COVID, less than 4,000 people. It wasn't 130,000. Yes, you read that right. Turns out 97.1% of the deaths hitherto attributed to COVID were not due directly to COVID. Uh, of the 130,468 deaths registered as the official COVID deaths since the start of the pandemic, only 3,783 are directly attributable to the virus alone. All other Italians who lost their lives had from between one and five pre-existing diseases. Of those age 67 who died, 7% had more than three comorbidities and 18% at least two. According to the Institute, 65.8% of Italians who died after being infected with COVID were ill with arterial hypertension, high blood pressure, 23.5% had dementia, 293 had diabetes, 24.8% arterial fibrillation, add to that 17.4% had lung problems, 16.3% had cancer in the last five years, 15.7% suffered from previous heart failures. The Institute's new definition of COVID death means that COVID has killed fewer people in Italy than, here we go, the average bout of seasonal flu. Yeah. Let's just pause 
And the narrative, you question it. And the minute, I mean, we're willing, we're willing to yield, we're willing to play their games, but now you're messing with our kids. And that's what I told Kathleen. And she goes, ready for this? She goes, what's theirs? Where do you get your data? I'm like, wait, you are a reporter? That's government stuff. I didn't make that up. That's shocking. And I share all that because we have to defend and protect the children. And as I was witnessing all these kids all across the country, I was amazed at their courage. Most of these children, I say children, young people, that are contending on their college campuses receive more flack becoming, or or, or standing for principles of truth on their campus than they did for declaring themselves to be a Christian. Being a Christian nowadays, considering the state of the church, uh, is not controversial and you don't face trials or difficulties. But standing for truth on your campus and speaking truth on your campus in a world that's politically correct, you get death threats and protests. And yet I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, are your parents, did they inspire you? No, my parents are the opposite of me. And I'm thinking my generation, I I, I turned to them and I just said, you know, I'm 57, I'm on the downhill side of life, I'm not gonna live to be 114, I'm 57 now, and I'm probably picking up speed, but I just said to them, look, uh, you know, all, all of my generation, we just want to, you know, accumulate all of our material possessions and, you know, get a drink with an umbrella on a beach somewhere and just call it quits. But we've been awakened that we've let you down. And um, we're not giving to you what 245 years of faithful men and women gave to us. Freedom. And we're scared of a virus that has... We're willing, we're willing to throw you into the experimental tank for a virus that has no danger to you. And we won't say anything. And the more they've been pushing it, the more parents are awakening and going, you know what, I'm wrong. Um, and whatever it is I thought was valuable is not. Because in our Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with life, then liberty, then the pursuit of happiness. Happiness and virtue is the critical component here. Let me tell you the happiest thing you can do, the most virtuous thing you can do. Transfer the gift of liberty and freedom you've received to the next generation. Quit making it about yourself. It's a long introduction, but it'll be worth it. At least I think. Um, The greatest thing you can do is to transfer that liberty to the next generation. That's the most virtuous and happy thing possible. And a lot of us have failed, me included. But I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to discourage you because the Bible says forgets what, forgetting what's behind, striving for what is ahead, take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. Even when we look at abortion in, the United, uh, in California or the United States, all of us have been affected by it or probably participate in some capacity in that horrendous action. But it doesn't mean that we have to double down and defend ourselves. It means that we have to repent. Repentance means agree with God that it's wrong. Forget what's behind. Okay, you did it. God's forgiven it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now make the world a better place. 
if you've received the uh, injection and now you're looking at the data and you're saying, ah, I was an advocate for it, now I see it. There's no condemnation. Hey, welcome to the room that's filled with people who've made mistakes. Amen? Okay, now let's forget what's behind and let's do the right thing and let's fix this country. And let's fix the world. And we do it through the strength of Christ because the reason why we're going to labor into this regard is not for ourselves, but for the generation to come. That's why we do what we do. And that's how the Lord built this message into my heart. The capstone of the message was last night, Cole Bricado, who's running for state assembly, um, the office that Jackie Irwin holds. He lived in Lancaster. He and his wife were going to, and two kids were going to move out of state because they were sick of it. They came to this church in the middle, because it was the only church open, they came to the church in the middle of the lockdown, and they were so inspired that they sold their stuff in Lancaster and moved here, and now he's in Ventura County, and he's running for office. And, you know, Lancaster's affordable. That, that was a sacrifice, and, and when he did that, Last night he's with his son. He said, my boy was uh, playing uh, PYFL. They practiced, they wanted to play. They kept postponing the season and they kept saying it's because of the lockdown and blah, blah, blah. And they were saying, we can't play, we can't play, we can't play. And my 11-year-old son came to me and he was telling me because his son was next to him, Caleb. And he said, dad, you're the adult here. Tell them they're wrong. And I'm, I'm looking at this 11-year-old going, dude. That's the generation that's inspiring us and we should be inspiring them. And Cole's like, yeah, Rob, I agree. And as we were doing the anchored reading where we go through the Bible for you know, over two years, it brought me to 2 Kings chapter 13, one of my favorite passages, and that's the opening. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll put it up on the screen for those of you who didn't have your scriptures with you. Elisha's uh, the prophet of Israel. He took over from a guy named Elijah. Elijah was a mean dude. Elisha's a sweetheart. They call him the mother man of Israel. He never gets angry. But he's dying at this point. Something happens that's never happened in the course of his life. He gets angry. And when it says he got angry, the Hebrew word means he exploded in wrath. Like he was really upset. There's a Scottish word. It's called pissed. But I can't use it because in the English, American English, it's, we think it's awful. It actually is. I'm sorry. I'm not really, though. <laughs> Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. And then Joash, the king of Israel, young kid, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him, uh, over his face, and said, now remember this statement because you're going to see it again. He said this to Elisha, Joash, King Joash says this to Elisha. He says, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take the bow and some arrows. And so he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on the bow and Elisha with his, you know, arthritic, knuckled, bent fingers, puts it over Joash's hands. As the scripture says, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands and then he, Elisha said, open the east window. And so Joash opens the east window and Elisha said, shoot. And he shot and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from the Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them, son. What he's saying to Joash is, you're the king. 
These people are depending on you and the Syrians are gonna kill them. And they're looking at you to be a provider and a protector. Now do your job. And when you shoot an arrow out the east window, you're declaring war on the Syrians that want to annihilate your people. Protect them. And he's imparting this as an aged man. He's telling them, this is your job. Then he said, Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. And the man of God, Elisha, was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you destroyed it. But now, strike them only three times. Elisha died. <laughs> and they buried him and the raiding party came. Some guy's injured. They put him down the hole where the bones of Elijah are and the bones of Elijah revived him. You can read that there in the text. We have a picture of what occurred that day. It's a photograph. It's amazing. It's um, there's one right there, shooting the arrow. It's not a photograph, nobody giggled. <laughs> but there's Elisha, he's dying, that's Joash. Why do you want me to do this, this is stupid. And that's him striking the ground. The point is, Elisha's trying to tell Joash, you need to do your job, son. He'd rather stay in the basement with his Nintendo pausing for emphasis. Let's pray. Lord, as we take a look at this passage of scripture and another one in the reading as well, I ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the great responsibility you've entrusted to us and one that would allow us to have a virtuous life. The pursuit of happiness. I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God. Happiness. Help us, Lord. Awaken us, I pray. Thank you for the great gift of this nation. We love you, Lord. And all we have is because you gave it to us. What do we have that you haven't first given us? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. And Lord, we know that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, we groan. Help us, God. I just ask your blessing on the study of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, grab a seat. <clears throat>
you know, the chariots uh, and, and oh, my father, my father. And he quotes this. And he declared this to Elisha as Elisha was on his deathbed. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And, and as he stated this, um, Elisha turns to Joash and he says, I, I, I need you to get the bow and the arrows. And he does. And he's going to teach him a lesson as, as he's just moments from death. And with the strength remaining in his body, his, his riddled, aged fingers wrap around the hands of Joash as they open the east window. And he, 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 the strength of the young man pulls the bow back, but he you know, follows his hands, and then they let the arrow go. And then he says, now take those arrows and strike the ground. And he, he taps it to you know, just satisfy the old man. And with what's left in his body, for the first time in his entire ministry, he explodes in anger. And he just lets, lets loose on this young man. You didn't do your job. You're the king. You're a provider and a protector. Syria wants to wipe our people off the face of the earth, and you're their king. And you take it so lightly. He knew the heart of that young man, he had no conviction, no passion. I've seen those. They want to blame everybody for something instead of take responsibility for their lives. I had such a lousy dad. My dad left. Look, I'm not dismissing your pain. That's legitimate. I was with Chad as he was telling me his life story. It was painful. I'm a minister over 20 years. I've heard painful stories. Things that would just cause your toes to curl. It's so vile. We can turn that off when you get a chance, thanks. Maybe that's somebody calling with a story. But as, as I've heard these stories, I can say this, that the people that I've met that have overcome this pain are the ones that succeed. Those who forget what's behind, strive for what is ahead, they succeed. The ones that use it and, and allow it to paralyze their life because of the pain, they're the ones that have problems. And I, I say this because as a third anniversary of the shooting, that's a tough one to overcome. And you young people that were a part of that and experienced it and you've had those nightmares, that's a tough one to overcome. For those of you who have had experiences with parents who've been abusive and so many awful things happening to you, I get it. And Joash can look at Elisha and say, what do you know about my life? How, how, how dare you yell at me, old man? What do you know? It's kind of like saying, what do you know about the black church? You don't have any right to speak into my life. You don't have any right to speak to the issue. We don't want people to try to talk us out of our pain. Or our justification for why we don't do what we're supposed to do. I have every right to feel the way I feel. Okay. Well, the thing is, Elisha did have the right to speak into this young man's life because when he was Joash's exact age, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter two. And I'm not gonna put it on the screen. You have to work this time. 2 Kings chapter two, verse one, it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah who was, Elijah was to Elisha what Elisha is to Joash. But Elijah was mean 
He was a difficult man to work for. He was always angry. He was brutal. I'll prove it to you. It came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I'm not going to leave you. He's saying, I've been called to serve you. I'm not going to leave your side. So he went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know the Lord today is going to take your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I'm not going to leave you. Where are you going? I'm following you. Get away from me, kid. You bother me. And he keeps going. He goes, he goes from Bethel to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I won't leave you so. He followed him to Jericho. And as the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, yes, now keep silent. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on and 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up and struck the water. And it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? It's the only time he ever offered to serve him. You've been good to me. I know I don't talk to you a lot. We don't have these man-to-man conversations. Some of you had fathers like that. The entirety of your life, he said 10 words to you. That's Elijah. Well... What do you want me to do for you? Because I'm going. Just say it and I'll, I'll do it. Elisha said, I want to be twice the man as you. He did say that. Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. I want to be twice the man as you. I want to have your power with tenderness. So he said, you've asked for a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken away from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Have a nice life. (laughs) Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Didn't say anything like, goodbye. Elisha saw it and he cried out. Here's what he cried out, ready? My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more and he took hold of his clothes and tore them in pieces and he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the banks of the Jordan and had the same strength and power. But of course, he was twice the man as Elijah. So yes, Joash, I do know a little bit about what I'm talking about. Oh, you had a rough upbringing. So did I. Get over it. Forget what's behind. Strive for what is ahead. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. You are a provider and a protector. You have a responsibility and your excuses aren't going to win the day. And there's people counting on you. Get up every day, dress up, put your shoes on, and act like the man you're supposed to be and get your job done. And you clap because you want that for somebody in your life that isn't quite doing it. 
And some of the kids in the room are Joash. Yeah. Three taps with the arrows. You'll play by your parents' rules until you can get your own money and get on your way. Doesn't matter to you. And one of the problems is we as parents have tolerated raising Joe Ashes. We're so busy buying things we don't need to impress people we don't know with money we don't have. And we've relegated the instruction of our children by the way the Lord says that we're stewards of our children's lives, but we've relegated that to the government. And now they've separated them from us and the history. And we look at the Joashes of the world and we're upset, but we also have to look at ourselves and say, was I part of that? Did I give to my children what 245 years of ancestry gave to me? And am I willing to move away from my trinkets and my baubles and my materialism to contend and defend the most important thing that makes everyone happy and that's liberty and freedom for the next generation? But then when we're challenged, we give excuses that, well, maybe that works for you, Pastor, because you had a good dad. Everybody's got an excuse. They're like belly buttons. Everyone's got one and they're full of lint. That's a nice way of saying it, by the way. Here's a man with a lousy dad, Benjamin Franklin. He was 15th of 17 children born to a father, Josiah Franklin, who was a brutal man. He was a candle maker. He granted only two years of formal education. Franklin supplemented his knowledge by constantly having his nose stuck in a book. And when he was 17, young Ben struck out on his own, traveled to Philadelphia. Unlike other aristocrats of the period he used slave, he, who used slave labor to free up time for their pursuits, Franklin created an enormously successful printing business which allowed him to retire and became a veritable renaissance man. His accomplishments are too numerous to list. As an author, he penned the Poor Richard's Almanac and numerous classic essays. As an inventor, he created the lightning rod, the glass harmonica, and bifocal glasses. As a thinker, he established the first subscription library in the American Philosophical Society. As a scientist, he made important investigations into the nature of electricity. He served his country, state, and city as a councilman, postmaster, recruiter of the Pennsylvania militia, speaker of the Pennsylvania State House, delegate to the Second Continental Congress, ambassador to France, president of University of Pennsylvania, and founding father, and not bad for a son of a candlemaker, and the only founder to have his signature on all three of the major documents, Declaration of Independence, U.S. Constitution, and the Paris Peace Agreement. Lousy dad. Oh, let's get another one. He didn't even know his father. Frank, uh, Frederick Douglass rose from the shackles of slavery to extraordinary success. He understood that nothing in life would ever be handed to him when his master's wife, who had been teaching him the alphabet, was reprimanded for doing so by her husband, Douglas continued to learn to read by interacting with white children and working through any written materials he could find. When he was traded to the cruel mastery of Edward Covey, who regularly whipped Douglas, Douglas confronted his master, getting him to back down and never raise his hand to him again. In 1838, he took the great risk and escaped from slavery to Massachusetts. Douglas soon rose to prominence, becoming an outspoken abolitionist, a spectacular orator, a best-selling author, and a newspaper publisher. And after the Civil War, Douglas served as president of the Freedmen's Savings Bank, marshal of the District of Columbia, minister, resident, and consul general to the Republic of Haiti, and charged affairs uh, for the Dominican Republic. And during the 1888 Republican Convention, he became the first African-American to receive a vote to be nominated for the presidency. Douglas had risen from slavery to become one of the most prominent, well-respected black men in the United States. 
this man had a terrible dad. Kicked out of school for being distracted, Thomas Edison received only three months of formal schooling. His father used to beat him because he said he was stupid. The rest of Edison's education came from his mother's homeschooling and his reading of classical books. Though he lost nearly all of his hearing at a young age, probably from being beaten, Edison did not let his disability hinder him. He early on showed a tenacious entrepreneurial streak. He sold candy and newspapers aboard trains as a youth and then won a position as a telegraph operator when he saved a station's agent's son from being run over by a train. As a telegrapher, he worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. Edison requested that night shift so that he could read and do his experiments during the slow evening hours. His constant tinkering paid off. Edison, often with the help of his partners, came up with a myriad of inventions, including the phonograph, stock ticker, fluoroscope, kinetoscope, and most famously, the first commercially viable incandescent lamp the Wizard of Menlo Park was both a genius inventor and a savvy businessman. He filed more than 1,500 patents during his lifetime and founded 14 companies, including General Electric. Made the world a better place. This man had a terrible father. His dad was a Reformed Baptist. Brutal. His first mother, his biological mother died. His stepmother, Sarah, said, the saintliest woman I've ever known. She raised him. His dad was estranged from him. Lincoln lacked connections and formal education and yet became one of the greatest presidents in the United States history, famously born in a one-room cabin to uneducated farmer parents. Abraham Lincoln's rise to the presidency has long been the stuff of legend. Lincoln was almost entirely self-educated. He received only 18 months of formal schooling. He offset his disadvantage by consuming any book he could get his hands on at the age of 22. Lincoln set out on his own. He taught himself the law and became a successful attorney and state le uh, legislator in Illinois. Losing his senatorial campaign in 1858 to Stephen Douglas did not deter him from his goals. He preserved uh, against this very, he persevered against this very same opponent to win the presidency and he was the greatest president of the United States along the lines with Washington in the most tumultuous time in the history of our country. And the fascinating thing about Lincoln, this man, understood that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God, probably the first president to come to Christ while in office, wrote more scripture in his inaugural addresses than any other president in the history of our country. Understood, understood scripture. Um, Elizabeth Keckley would look over her shoulder as she was a, a servant in the White House and said every time she looked at him, he was reading his Bible. The passage of his Bible that's dog-eared the most is the book of Job. And this man had a rough life and had a quick end, but made a huge impact. Oh, you had bad parents? So did this guy. Clarence Thomas was born in a poor community of Penn, Georgia, abandoned by his father, left homeless after a fire. Clarence and his brothers moved to Savannah. They moved in with Clarence's grandfather, who would have a profound effect on the boy. He taught Thomas the value of hard work by taking Clarence on deliveries for his ice business and having him regularly work on the farm from sunrise to sunset. Thomas became the first person in his family to attend college when he headed off to the College of the Holy Cross. He then received a Doctor of Jurisprudence from Yale Law School. After law school, Thomas steadily attained prestigious positions. He finally grasped the legal world's brass ring when he was confirmed as a Supreme Court Justice in 1991. This man had a brutal Scottish father he was a handloom weaver. He moved his family to America. This is Andrew Carnegie. When Andrew was 13, Carnegie's first job was working as a bobbin boy at the textile factory making a buck 50 a week. He subsequently took jobs as a boiler tender, bookkeeper's clerk, and telegraph delivery boy. boy. All the while, he read to educate himself, 
Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul said that to Timothy. I say that to all you young people. Study, front load your life. Leaders read and readers lead. He read, all these people read. He read and educated himself and worked to mitigate his thick Scottish accent. He improved himself. He woke up every day. Act like the person you've always wanted to be. He landed a job with the Pennsylvania Telegraph Company. He religiously saved his money, reinvested it in the railroad business. He worked his way up to being a superintendent of Pennsylvania Railroad's Western Division and then supervising Union's Telegraph First Lines during a civil war. This is the interesting part. After the war, he left the railroad business, began focusing on building and investing in ironworks by bringing great efficiency to the business, taking over one steel company after another and utilizing vertical integration, Carnegie soon created an empire of steel and iron. In 1901, Carnegie sold his steel holdings to J.P. Morgan for $480 million. That's hundreds of billions of dollars, by the way, in today's money. Carnegie had long preached what he called the gospel of wealth. If you've never read it, you should. A philosophy in which a man should aim to acquire as much fortune as possible, meaning you acquire fortune because you create things people need, and as you amass that, you make the world a better place. It's a fascinating book, The Gospel of Wealth, and give it away to others, not to enable them, because money is an accelerant. You'll learn this in the book. makes you more of what you already are. He uses money to what? Build libraries. Study, kids. And you're like, why'd you waste your money? Why didn't you buy Nintendo sets? Pausing again. On this point, unlike several others, Carnegie was a man of his word. During his lifetime, he donated $350,695,653 to philanthropic causes, and upon his death, he gave away the last $30 million. And the last. Booker T. Washington grew up a slave. Freed by the 13th Amendment as a freedman, he took work in salt mine, coal mines, before entering Hampton Institute to pursue an education. The president of Hampton recommended that Washington be made head of the newly formed Tuskegee Institute. From this position, Washington soon came in prominence as a naturally known advocate for uplift and education of African Americans. His efforts to befriend many of the rich corporate heads of this time and persuade them to donate their money to the education of his fellow freedmen met with great success and led to the building of over 5,000 schools in the rural south His profile was further raised by the brisk sales of autobiography Up From Slavery and his invitation from President Theodore Roosevelt to become the first African-American to dine at the White House. Pretty cool. They all had lousy dads or didn't even know them. Certainly didn't get a good start in life. So we've got an issue with parents and kids and kids and parents. One's supposed to inspire but doesn't. The other's supposed to receive and excel. One does inspire and one doesn't receive. One doesn't, one doesn't inspire and one exceeds, succeeds. So if we all did it together and we realized as fathers that we're providers and protectors and inspirers, and we all right now corporately agree in a nation that is facing the most critical attack in the 245 years of freedom that this nation's ever experienced without blood being shed. It's a little bit, but not like the Civil War. This is a critical moment in the life of the Republic, and will your children get and receive what you have enjoyed that's been given to you by 245 years of heritage? Are you going to give that to them, or are you too busy 
buying things you don't need to impress people you don't know with money you don't have. Maybe you have it and you're wasting it. The question is, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is the next generation and making sure they have what you enjoyed. Now, will you take that responsibility? Elisha tried to impart that to Joash. Joash didn't listen. There was another father to a man that didn't have a dad. This man didn't have a dad. We know that he had a mother and a grandmother. His grandmother was Eunice. Her mother's name was Eunice. But we never hear of his father. He was probably raised in a single family home. And Paul took him under his wing as his son in the faith. He loved this young man. His name was Timothy. I quoted Timothy, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, when he said, Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed. Rightly divide truth. Do your homework, son. I want you to succeed. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word. You gotta read, son. You wanna know truth. You wanna contend for truth, son. You wanna finish well. It's not how you start in life, it's how you finish. Look, we've all made mistakes. Paul made mistakes. Wherever you are on that spectrum, whether you've failed in standing in defense of the unborn or you're just starting to awaken to the disastrous shot that is going around the world and wants to ruin our kids, wherever you are in this, okay, we've all made mistakes. The room's filled with people who make mistakes. Praise the Lord, you're right with us. But from this day forward, the the Lord says, forget what's behind, strive for what is ahead. Today you become the parent you were always called to be. Today you become the child you were always called to be. Today is the day that we honor the Lord with our lives. Today is the day where we contend for freedom. Today is the day where we rectify those mistakes. You have a new life now. Today's the day where you begin to finish well. Why do I say finish well? Because we all started this race. We've all made mistakes, but now we know, and now we're gonna finish well, and that's what Paul says to Timothy, and that's what we say to each other. This was the last epistle Paul ever wrote before he was killed, he was martyred. It was the last words he was ever to write to his son. He wanted Timothy to know he loved him, but he wanted him to know how he loves him. He loves him practically because he was imparting to him. You see, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. He'd taken time to impart to his child, his son, the things that mattered most. He wasn't too busy at work. He wasn't too busy recreating. He had time to tell his son, who wasn't even his biological son, what's important in life and how you live a life that will bring you the utmost happiness, its virtue. He said to Timothy, I charge you therefore, son, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. We're the only creatures, son, that have the ability to reason and use our mouth and our voice. Contend for truth, set captives free. They'll know the truth, the truth will set them free. You must proclaim it, you must defend it, you must stand upon it, preach the word, the word is true. Logos, dialogue, that's where you get logos in the dialogos. We reason together, contend in the arena, fight in the arena, don't be passive, don't be quiet, speak. Contend for ideology and truth. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. You need to get in the arena. And I told Charlie this, Charlie Kirk, I said, you know, I'm looking, Charlie, 10 years ago when you started this thing, I think it was 10 years ago, here you are, 10 years. And when you first stepped onto that campus, you got beat up verbally, physically, And I love how you have now discovered this word 
anti-fragile. Because every time you got beat up or you got schooled with, with someone else's logic and you, the, the, the argument tore you apart, you went back and you studied. You didn't get frail and you weren't broken and you weren't crushed in your little spirit and your ninth place finish and you got a trophy with all the other kids. No, you went back, licked your wounds, got it all cleaned up and did your homework and went back and contended again in the arena. You got up, dusted yourself off and you did it. You're not fragile, you're anti-fragile. Every time they, they win, you get stronger. And today, Charlie, the domino started toppling. And I told him that. I go, New Jersey, Virginia, you've been working all across the country. I'm exhausted. You're exhausted. We're winning. <laughs> and he picks himself up. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. Convince, rebuke, exhort, long-suffering. The long-suffering means you're like a soldier in battle. You're, you're an athlete in the fourth quarter. You just don't quit. Just keep going. Persevere. You're in the arena. You're in the arena and you must persevere with all long suffering and teaching from the time, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions like a soldier, like an athlete. You endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. An evangelist isn't four spiritual laws, Romans road. No, an evangelist is someone who proclaims truth. An evangelist is someone who goes forward and says, God created the heavens and the earth. You're not some primordial soup. You're not some cosmic accident. You're not a wart on the back of a frog that turned into a human being. You've been created in the image of God. You're, you're the imago Dei. God has called that you would flourish and have life and life more abundant. There's a good news. It's Ulongelion that God knows that you're separated from him. He's been reconciled by his blood. He's come to set you free. You're on the slave block of sin. He paid the price to set you free. That's good news, I want you to know it. And they're gonna laugh at you, they're gonna ridicule you. They're gonna come up with some fanciful fables that you have been created out of nothing in a closed system that life just appears and you look at them and you go, are you crazy? Well, everyone believes with me and all the schools across the country embrace it and it's called evolution. And you look at them and you say, no. And they're gonna laugh at you. And I gotta tell you something, morality is not doing what's wrong. But character is doing what's right. And when your child says that all the kids called Susie fat, but I didn't, you're moral, kid, good. But where's your character? Why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? Because they'd laugh at me and I'd be ridiculed and I'd be the minority. So what? You're accountable to God. There's something beyond this. This is the world that you live in. The reality of the two great laws of the universe. There's a God, you're not him. And you stand and you're, no, you're not wavering and you're smart because you study, son. Don't be afraid of truth. Don't be afraid of standing for what's right, no matter what it costs. Because this earth is passing away. You're gonna stand before God. Have that, and I said that to my boys at the cemetery. Every great journey begins with the end in mind. You're going into that box. But the rest of you goes on. And you'll stand before God. Do what's right. Everyone is gonna try to convince with this foolishness and these fables but you endure afflictions and you do the work of telling people the good news. And he concludes as he's dying and he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand, son. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I, I, I'm gonna get an award. 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So son, with that in mind, be diligent. And would you come to me quickly? I miss you. I won't be here much longer. Demas has forsaken me. He loved this present world, a part of Thessalonica. My heart's been broken. I want you to know life is gonna be filled with heartbreak, son. Creskin's left for Galatia. Titus went to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And remember Mark, the guy that I didn't like? Well, I'll tell you what, that kid's come around. He's useful to me now. Bring him with you when you come, for he's useful to me for the ministry. Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. He's one of the few remaining. And then he says this, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, because winter's coming and I'm cold. You want to take care of your body physically. But then he says this, and don't forget the books, son, because you've got to study to show yourself approved unto God, a work we need to be ashamed. But not just the books. I need you to bring the parchments, the word. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word. But Paul, you've memorized the word, I know. But I want you to know how important it is to me and it needs to be with me because I'm getting ready to face the greatest challenge of my life. I'm gonna step from this earth before my creator and I know that death awaits me and the word is a great comfort to me. But my life is finished, Timothy. But I take great joy in knowing it's transferred to you, son. Now you do all those things, you're gonna be successful. And he's dead within months after that last epistle. And today's communion Sunday. Finishing well. My favorite of the last seven words, you've heard me say it many times, you'll hear me say it again many times, but of the last seven words that Christ spoke on the cross, this is my favorite, he said it in the Greek, to telestai. Translated, it is finished. Better translated, paid in full. Son, I have lived a life of example to you. I've given you everything I have. And now, as you hold that cup in your hand and the elements, if you want to grab them, and I'll invite the worship team up. On the night that Christ was be to, to be betrayed, they had a Passover meal, which I've said so many times before was the longest running family meal in world history. It's a meal where every Jewish family remembers. Remember you were once slaves and now you're free. The angel of death passed over and you were set free. And at that Passover meal, he uses that opportunity to tell them you're free. My race is finished and now I've imparted to you freedom. I'm giving to you what was given to me. I'm giving this to you. I've labored for you. You're free. And on the night he was to be betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. They didn't understand. And then he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. As he held up the cup of wine, he said, my blood shed for the remission of your sins. That Passover meal was illustrative because the lamb that was slain during the Passover was a type of Christ. It was a foreshadowing of the lamb of God who'd come to take away the sins of the world. And here you and I are in a world where we have made mistakes and we have excuses. And God says, look, 
I've taken care of that. It's finished. Now go finish well. You forget about that. I covered it in my blood. Now you go and contend to set the captives free. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I have come to set you free. Now do the same for others. You're free. Finish well. I don't care what kind of dad you had. You got me, the Lord says. You got everything you need. Now go be free and set everyone else free. Live your life in such a way that it counts. Double portion. Be twice the man. Amen? Lord Jesus, we honor you. We do this in remembrance of you. We thank you that you were beaten, your body was broken, and then your blood was poured out. And that blood had to be shed so we would be forgiven. For blood must be shed for the remission of sins. And God, you reconciled us to the Father. No matter what a miserable earthly father we had or good father we had, neither compares with the wonder of who you are as our heavenly father. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free. And now we get, like you, we get to finish well. Let us live to set others free as you died to set us free. We thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take communion at your leisure. Worship with the Lord. Uh, The bread first, so remember the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. You screw up the order, you're still going to heaven. God bless you all. Don't forget, it's finished. You're free. Now live accordingly. Amen.